I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. What we do here... Well, we do true crime. John Billington, America's first murderer. Oh my. America's first murderer? This is going to be back in the day. When was America? When did America... I know all the Americans like, oh, America officially became America in like... I don't know when. But there was 1776. Is that right? Is that independence date? Something like that, isn't it? Um... So this is going to be back in the day, I guess. Uh, David wrote this one. I've never read it. Uh, that's the shtick here. I've got a script in front of me. I'm going to read it all. It's going to be... I want to say it's going to be fun. <laughs> it's probably not, is it? It's about murder. Anyway, let's just get on with it. Thank you, David. Thank you as well to Jen, who uh, does the music, does the visual effects on these videos afterwards. Um, makes it a reality. Yeah, this is also as a video. If you're listening to this as a podcast and you think, oh, I'd like to look at this. I'd like to see what's going on. I'd like some pictures. It also goes out on YouTube, doesn't it? And if you're watching on YouTube, hello. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, just a heads up, after Ed Gein, and especially after spending six hours researching and writing up the revolting contents of his house, I needed this next script to be a light one. Ah, okay, David's last... I, I hope these publish in order, but I'm not sure. David last at least wrote for me Ed Gein, which was horrible. There were parts... It was the kind of first time with uh, David's scripts that I had to skip over some details, because I'm always like, this is CSI, this ain't Saw... And David knows this, and he's like, yeah, these were the details, though. I don't know how to say it. I'm just like, let's Oh, God, it was so grim. I skipped over a bit. I knew this script to be a light one. Deepest apologies to all the gore-mongers in the audience, though I know still others appreciate the occasional breath of fresh air. Yes. Oh, my God. I don't know. This isn't, this isn't a murder porn podcast. This isn't that true crime show. This is like... It's more, uh, it's like, like I say, more CSI. It's like, let's get some people caught. Let's get these murderers in prison or uh, gassed or some shit like that. Let's, I don't know, or hang them back in the day, right? Today's episode also comes with a direct personal connection. As a result of my sometimes dark and grim tone of writing, a few people in the comments have been speculating that I'm a serial killer in real life. Uh-oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like, that would be news. True crime podcast. Uh, one of the writers turns out to be an actual serial killer. Holy shit. Don't podcast your crimes. I mean, that would probably, I would get a lot of views, which would be nice. That'd be, that'd, it'd be good, you know. <laughs> There's no such thing as bad publicity, even if one of your writers turns out to be a serial killer. But let's not hope for that, because serial killers are bad. I'm not sure whether this wants to make me laugh or cry. On the one hand, I'm extremely gratified that my true crime writing sometimes leaves people shaken and uneasy. It makes me feel like Matthew McConaughey's character from the first season of True Detective. On the other hand, I must stress that knowing how to effectively dismember and discreetly dispose of a corpse can come from research rather than practical first-hand experience. And now that I think about it, I'm a bit worried what the Australian police might think of my recent Google search history. This video brought to you by Surfshark VPN. <laughs> it's not, but um, it could be. It could, or maybe it is. I don't know. The advert's going later. 
It also doesn't help that I try to be precise about the methods of serial killers and sometimes try to unpack their psychology, but I can assure you, dear listeners, that this all comes from sheer dedication to the craft, not from background knowledge derived from my hobbies. These hobbies are much more benign, mostly consisting of walking my dog, hiking, spending time at the beach, cooking, occasionally drinking to excess, and entirely separately exchanging shouting obscenities with people on Xbox. Yeah, no, this is the... (laughs) No murder. These are nice hobbies. We have uh, super similar hobbies, David. Hiking, I love. Uh, hiking's one of those things that I've just got mad into as an adult. There's nothing better than just putting on my hiking boots and going for a big, long hike in the forest. I just, it's so peaceful. It's so quiet. I think since my life just became busy and uh, I had kids, I'm just like, that time that you have just quiet in the forest, you're just like, mwah. And also, I mean, who doesn't love occasionally drinking to excess? And cooking and shouting at people on Xbox. There's not a single literal skeleton in my closet or under my porch or hidden in the Belango State Forest. Uh oh. And yet, here I am, about to throw more fuel onto the fire by letting you in on a little secret. I am descended from America's first murderer, or rather, the first man to be executed for murder in the 13 colonies which preceded the United States. Make of that what you will. You can trace your genealogy back that far. That's impressive. I, I think I've told this story before. I got stuck in the 19th century. I trace my um, uh, my my father's side of the family are, are not from the UK. My mum's side are. And so I started with her surname, which I'm not going to share. Yeah, I've definitely told this story. I don't know if I've told it on this podcast, but it's like I was about to share their name. And then I'm like, wait, your mother's maiden name is literally the security answer that like banks make you give. Uh, but I managed to trace that name all the way back to like the 1850s when that side of the family emigrated from Germany. And uh, then I lost the trail because it became German. And I'm like, well, I didn't have the records on ancestry for Germany. And uh, that's as far as I got. Meet John Billington. My great-great-great-great-grandpappy, 12 times over, was born around 1580 in Elizabethan England in the southern part of the county of Lincolnshire. Not much is known about Billington's early life because he undoubtedly came from the lower orders. He was born into an old-fashioned rural community where most people worked on farms and coalesced in small villages where written records were seldom kept of England's great unwashed masses. It's likely Billington worked as some aspect of agriculture since he would later employ that knowledge while farming his land in the New World. Meanwhile, the Old World was about to enter the modern age. England was slowly ceasing to be largely a rural and peasant-based economy that it had been throughout the Middle Ages. England was transforming into a commercial and mercantile power. As such, like many farmers' sons whose ancestors had never strayed more than a few miles from home, John Billington headed all the way to London to earn his fortune. The fact he did so may imply that Billington did not have firmly established ties within the community of Lincolnshire, much less any property. He is also described in historical records as, quote, a very profane man. <laughs> I like that that's, there's still records of that. Yeah, he liked to swear. <laughs> I think the future will record Simon as being a profane YouTuber. I mean, not not that, like, there's people who swear like it's, you know, half the words they say. I love a good swear word. People are like, oh, Simon, clean it up. And I'm like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like this, the non, the not super smart person way of adding emphasis. Of course, if I was smarter, I could use all sorts of clever words. But then people will be like, oh, Simon, stop being so pretentious. So you just can't win. And I just find swear words. It's like, oh, f- right. It's like, you know, it just adds a little bit of, mm. at least it does to me. I don't care. Uh, which in historical context can be interpreted as John being irreligious, irreverent, mischievous, prone to carnal pleasures of the world. 
and has a big foul mouth. <laughs> Perhaps many of his neighbors in southern Lincolnshire were glad to see the back of him. When John was in his early 20s, he met his wife Eleanor, who may have also come from Lincolnshire, though it's possible that she was a Londoner. We don't exactly have a lot of information about my dear, beloved, great, 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 etc. grandmama. She also gained something of a reputation for being quarrelsome, outspoken, and having feuds with other people. I'm super curious how you know this person is related to you. I'd really like to know. She also gained something of a reputation of being quarrelsome, outspoken, and a feud with other people. John Ella had two children, John Jr., born roughly in 1604, and Francis Billington, born in approximately 1606. In their younger years, at the very least, the Billington boys had a reputation for being juvenile delinquents. Well, like father, like son. For the next few years to 1620, the Billington family lived in London and just barely avoided poverty and destitution. We don't exactly know what Billington did for a job in London, but it certainly didn't pay very well. Or it's possible that John was simply a spendthrift with his money, splashing out on an expensive place of residence along with wine, women, and song. That wouldn't be unusual for London. Either way, John accrued a massive amount of debt from various creditors in order to make ends meet. And in those days, failure to repay debt would see you landed in prison until you paid it off. Which in retrospect is just a crazy thing. It's like, yeah, 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 you're going to go to prison because you owe us all this money. And it's like, wait, 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 I'm in prison. How am I going to make that money and pay you off? And they're like, oh, that's your problem, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, it's your problem as well. It's your money that I owe you. Either way, John accrued a massive amount of debt from various creditors in order to make ends meet, and in those days, failure to repay a debt could see you landed in prison until you paid it off, which is demented, because if you are in prison, you can't exactly work. Thank you, David. Agreed. I guess that's why we don't have debtors prison anymore. <laughs> It's a bit of an insane concept. As such, in a bid to escape his creditors and give his family a decent life, in 1620, John entered into a seven-year labor contract with a merchant investor for a new colony being set up in North America. The colony... Seven years? Seven-year contract? I know these exist, because don't they... Uh, isn't that why like some TV shows end, end after seven seasons, or used to? Because the cast will get like a contract for seven years, and then after that seven years, it's like, yo, yo, yo contracts up you want to continue this successful show i'm gonna to need to get paid a bit more um but seven years is an awful long time to lot i've i haven't been doing youtube seven years it feels i've been doing it forever the colony was rather lamely and predictably called new england it would be established just a few dozen miles north of the existing english colony of virginia the territory had warm weather and good lands for planting food and tobacco crops new england would be run by a group of puritans religious radicals who rejected the church of england and who formed a good chunk of the colonists i mean i know that life in the new world is gonna be super hard and i made that story about that colony was it in virginia where it all went terribly wrong and there was like famine and cannibalism and all that crazy stuff but if you're some like poor dude in london and then they're like yeah go to the new world you'll be like oh my god this place is really big and there's tons of land and uh the only thing we've got to put up with is these bloody puritans <laughs> it's worth noting that john billington was not a puritan he was a member of the church of england otherwise known as an anglican and given his rather outspoken nature his irreligiosity his reputation for being profane and his frequent resentment of all forms of authority it is likely he wasn't a very devout anglican either there is an old joke in england that anglicanism isn't so much a religion as it is a social club where not even the priests and bishops really believe many of the things that they preach or in other words Anglicanism is, quote, the least Christian version of Christianity. And while the truth of that joke is mixed, since many Anglicans, particularly large numbers outside England, are quite devout, the fact that the membership of the Church of England was legally compulsory for all English subjects at the time meant that a lot of people just paid lip service in order to get by. John was undoubtedly one of those people. Yeah, I feel like isn't that most 
At least I feel like in the UK, like my, you'd, I feel like most people in the UK would say they're religious. And then it'd be like, do you go to church? No. Even on Christmas? No. Do you believe in God? Ah, I believe in something. Do you believe in the writing of the Bible? No. <laughs> but are you religious? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it though, does it? Unfortunately, Billington's own religious beliefs, or lack thereof, would place him on a collision course with his more zealous Bible-bashing patriots. The Puritan faction in the expedition referred to people like John as, quote, the strangers because they adhered to the ungodly Anglican church. And John was also rather disreputable and troublesome, while the Puritans were exactly the opposite. In front of the upright and austere Puritans, Billington didn't stand a chance. It was as if Charlie Sheen had shown up a tea with Queen Victoria. It could not possibly end well, but it would be fun. <laughs> it would definitely be fun. Meet the Puritans. Europe in the early 17th century was a tinderbox of factionalism and deep division between neighbors. All sides were gearing up for yet another religious war. People who, generations earlier, would have lived peacefully side by side began dehumanizing each other to an extreme degree, purely based on what they believed. Think of early 17th century European society being like what Twitter is today. Oh my god. <laughs> Twitter is such a weird place. Like, it's definitely my prime, outside of YouTube, of course, it's definitely my primary social network. But there are some crazy people on Twitter. Like, I'll get some crazy. It's not Instagram, because on Instagram, DMs are open. So, like, anyone can just DM you. And the shit, like, don't, I don't go into my private messages. Like, maybe once a month I'll go in and see if anyone with a check mark has messaged me because that's like a good way to filter out the crazy people. Not that people with check marks aren't necessarily crazy, but I'll just go whip through and see if there's anything interesting. But on Twitter, there's just crazy people. People will say all sorts of shit and you'll be like, what's up? <laughs> okay. Except in Europe's fanatics were fighting, torturing, and killing each other over what kind of Christian they were rather than whatever the hell it is political fanatics are fighting over nowadays. On the one side, you had the Catholics staunchly supporting the Pope and centuries of Vatican dogma believed to be handed down by God himself. On the other hand, you had the Protestants who objected to a large number of Vatican practices and edicts who, who rejected the authority of the Pope. We don't really need to go into detail about the wars of religion. This isn't biographics. Yeah, I have to say, <laughs> I like read that last paragraph about religion and like Anglican and like blah 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 and literally what I heard in my mind was blah 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 Hopefully it doesn't matter because I didn't pay attention. And maybe you didn't either. England had gone Protestant in the previous century thanks to the family values of Henry VIII and the Church of England was placed under the family values. Six wives mate. And the Church of and he killed two of them and was placed under the authority of the monarch rather than the pope. This was Anglicanism. Yet some more radical Protestants, aka the Puritans, felt that Anglicanism didn't go far enough. Many of the trappings of Catholicism remained. Pompous bishops, huge cathedrals, graven images, exorbitant church spending and grandeur, and even the tying of pagan and Catholic traditions to Protestant religious holidays. Some of these radicals even felt England should ban the celebration of the overly Catholic holiday called Christmas which they did briefly under the religious dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, I don't know, Catholicism is a weird one. There's so much pomp and circumstance around it, and so much like, I don't know, there's a lot of dodgy stuff going on, because it's a super rich, super powerful, ancient institution. And it's like, yeah, no wonder, or sort of, and you know the stuff I'm talking about, that, I don't know, the Catholic Church ain't gonna sue. It's like, yo, 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 there's a lot of touching kids going on, isn't there? Like, what's up with that? There's a lot of corruption. 
There's all sorts of dodgy stuff. Like, what is this? Why are we still finding... Why is this okay? Why is this still happening? Allegedly. When King James I came to the throne in 1603, he incompetently managed to piss off both the Catholics and the Puritans. On the one hand, the Catholic fanatic Guy Fawkes tried to burn him up along with all of Parliament. On the other hand, some Puritans began work to take over England, which they did briefly, under Cromwell and the English Republic from roughly 1649 to 1660. Yet some Puritans weren't willing to sit around for half a century in order to worship, in order to wait to worship God the way that they wanted. And so they set up various branches of the Separatist Church after 1605, flouting Anglican supremacy in England. Bear in mind that during this time, not attending Anglican Mass was a crime punishable by fines. It would cost you the equivalent of roughly $25 in today's money for every Church of England service that you missed. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going. How often are these services? Like, once a month? Okay, cool. It's like Netflix. I'll just see it as having to pay not to do this. For poorer people, that added up significantly over the year. Furthermore, if you were caught preaching or circulating ideas contrary to the authority of the Church of England, you could be imprisoned or executed for sedition. The head of the church was the monarch, after all. In see, that's a lot of power, isn't it? In 1608, after the Separatist Church had been running for about three years, the Puritans got wind that the Crown had discovered their existence and was moving to arrest them for being illegal radicals. Approximately 400 Puritans abandoned most of their property and fled penniless to Leiden in South Holland, which practiced a modicum of religious tolerance towards different religious denominations. Already, the Dutch were nurturing a culture of tolerance and permissiveness. I just wish I could say, both then and now, that they weren't the least bit smug about it. I don't know how the Dutch particularly... I don't think Dutch people are very smug about this in particular. I've known a lot of Dutch people. They always strike me as extremely nice. <laughs> I have, like, almost overwhelmingly positive interactions with Dutch people. As a brief aside for local colour, the Dutch have a thing they call Dutch bluntness, where they openly speak their minds without regard for politeness or giving offence, which I also like. Like, this is the opposite of Britishness, where it's like... We'll have to flower things up to such a degree just to not offend someone. Whereas just being blunt is sometimes like, I don't know, I like it. I'm never going to do it because I'm way too British. But it's just like, it's, I, I admire that. However, during my own time living in the Netherlands... Oh, whoa! David has a much bigger experience than me of the Netherlands. Okay. I love how I just learn things about my writers' lives. Like, I had just no idea. Apparently David lived in the Netherlands. Okay. I soon suspected that uh, prefacing a statement with a warning of Dutch bluntness was often a get-out-of-jail-free card for them to be rude to foreigners. And judging by how many of them could dish rudeness out but not take it, I concluded that the whole thing was just a pretense and a sham. Human beings instinctively don't like excessive and insulting rudeness no matter the culture. <laughs> David. Sounds like David has a different experience of the Dutch than I do. And Dutch bluntness was on full display in the 17th century when local Leiden preachers and Calvinist church leaders began arguing publicly with the impoverished English interlopers. This gave rise to some religious insta instability, a deepening of radicalism, and even promoted fears that the Catholic Spanish would invade again in order to shut the whole thing down. The 400 English refugees also began to fear that in a few years their own brand of Puritanism would soon become assimilated and absorbed by Leiden's 30,000 other residents. The situation worsened in 1670 when the Dutch would ban church services by the English separatists in Holland. And so the Dutch culture of tolerance crumbled in the face of blunt political reality. Yeah, tolerance can only go so far until people are like, wait, 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 this is going to interfere with this? No more tolerance! Okay. So were you really tolerant in the first place? It was at this point that the English Puritans resolved to go to the New World. 
Two of the Puritans traveled to England to negotiate with a governing body which held all the deeds to land in America, simply called the London Company, because of course it was. <laughs> Originally, they set their sights on settling the area in which is now New York. After a series of political machinations, the London Company granted the Puritans permission to settle a territory just north of the existing English colony in Virginia. One condition came attached. The Puritans' religion would not be officially recognized. Instead, James I was merely utilizing some radical Protestants to gain another foothold in North America. Nevertheless, the agreements allowed the Puritans to be able to be largely self-governing. They would not fall under the authority of the existing Virginia colony, and so the Puritans leapt at the opportunity to create their own brand of religious theocracy, where they'd largely be left alone by the crown. The Puritans finally struck an agreement with the London Company in 1620 after a religious war had broken out again. I just realized this, this is this is the true crime show. And we've just got a history of uh, um, the Puritans going to the New World. And I have to say, like, other than a bit where it got a bit religiously complicated, I'm just totally absorbed in this story. <laughs> I just totally forgot what this is about. I assume at some point someone's going to get murdered. Don't turn off. Don't turn off. There's, there's going to be murder, I promise you. The Puritans finally struck an agreement with the London Company in 1620 after a religious war had broken out in Europe and the Netherlands was once again threatened with Spanish invasion. Many of the English Puritans did not have the money or time to depart Holland on the small ship the Speedwell to return to England in order to make the leap across the Atlantic. Only a few dozen English Puritans of the original 400 refugees crossed the English Channel. The Speedwell arrived in Southampton and rendezvoused with this one you've heard of, the Mayflower, which carried a further 65 passengers composed of additional Puritans and also non-Puritanical colonists who were just hoping for a new life in North America. John Billington and his family were among them. The Mayflower and the Speedwell set sail. Oh, I didn't realize. I just know the May. Everyone in Amer every American's like, eh, you didn't know the Speedwell. I know the Mayflower. Uh, set sail for the New World on August the 5th, 1620, but the Speedwell started leaking heavily, and so both ships were forced to dock at Plymouth in southwest England. The Puritans spread the rumor that the Speedwell's captain had, been, had deliberately sabotaged his own ship to avoid making the long voyage. The Mayflower was already full of passengers, and so 20 Puritans from the Speedwell were forced to go to London to find another way to the New World. Meanwhile, an overcrowded Mayflower, chock full of 102 passengers and roughly 30 crew, set sail on 16th of September, 1620 and made the perilous journey to America completely alone. Okay, maybe that's why we haven't heard of the Speedwell. Or I haven't heard of it, because it didn't actually make it. From just half of those 102 passengers on the Mayflower, a descended approximately 35 million people alive today. That is wild. You can check to see if you're one of them and apply to join the Mayflower Society, which operates around the world. I myself am member 43 of the Australian Mayflower Society, which is still fledgling due to the fact that Australian descendants made the leap to not one, but two British colonies over the past few centuries. My family has, in fact, made three such leaps. In that sense, I'm British Empire through and through, baby! <laughs> Something to be proud of, though, question mark? We'll just ignore the fact that two of those colonies in my history are associated with criminal behavior. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, David's from Canada and he lives in uh, Australia, if I'm not wrong. I'm pretty sure it's Canada. Now, just before we continue with today's episode, let me thank today's sponsors. First up, we have FitBod. Look, it's the beginning of a well, sort of the beginning of a new year, FitBod. I mean, you're really pushing it. We're into March now, but I guess so. Look, maybe you're looking to uh, carry on with one of your new year's resolutions maybe you're like oh i did do it so well in february it's not too late continue it with march it's gonna be great uh but the reality is it can be hard to make fitness a priority oh boy 
preach it, Fitbod. You need a program that works with you, not against you. Fitbod's innovative algorithm learns about your goals and training abilities and crafts a personalized training regimen that's unique to you. Yeah, I feel like goals get ripped. Training ability, minimal. Well, Fitbod, psh, that's what it's all about. Start off the year right with 25% off Fitbod membership. What's nice about Fitbod is it's not about comparing yourself to others. I don't know, look, it's really easy to be like, mm, why don't I have a mega six pack like that? Why don't I? This is, come on, come on, Bozzy, get it together. <laughs> why is it so difficult? It's not about comparing yourself to others. It's about having a plan that works for you so that you can achieve realistic goals, which of course keeps you motivated. Fitbod's algorithm changes and updates your fitness plan as you go, which uh, yeah, that just helps keep you on track, doesn't it? Fitbod is super easy to use and even has brand new HD video tutorials to make learning new exercises breeze. It integrates with your Apple Watch? I didn't even know that. I just got an Apple Watch. Cool, I'm going to try tying that in. Personalized training can be tough on a budget, but Fitbod's only $12.99 a month or $79.99 a year. Sign up now and you get 25% off your membership. Kick off the new year right. <laughs> These feel a little bit out of date, don't they? Look continue the new year right get 25% off a membership when you sign up now at fitbod.me forward slash casual 25% off when you sign up at fitbod.me slash casual also a big thank you to smart ass and sass for also sponsoring this it's the perfect subscription for you if you're a bit of a mouthy one yes smart ass and sass sprinkle sarcasm and curse words into every box and you listen to this show you know how much a beeping gets used you know i love to curse is profanity not the spice of life? Oh boy, is it. This box is not for those with a weak sense of humor, and it will definitely remind you that no matter what life throws at you, it's going to be okay. Smart ass and sass items are curated and personally tested by their team. A group who wants to make sure you have a laugh in your day. They partner with some of the best small businesses to bring you trendy and snarky items every single month. So there are a few subscription options. For example, their big box, which includes a shirt and also a bunch of other items. Seven to nine unique items valued at $90 plus, but it costs only $49.95. That's fantastic. And there are other subscription sizes available. Use code CASUAL for 10% off first-time subscription orders at smartassandsass.com. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Not valid on shop orders. Again, code CASUAL, 10% off at smartassandsass.com. And now back to the show. The past was the worst. John Billington and his family boarded the cramped Mayflower, which set sail in uh, set sail on September the 16th, 1620. Already luck was not in John's favor. September on the Atlantic Ocean was a dangerous place for sailing ships. Errant winds could blow a ship off course. And nevertheless, the month's delay caused by the speedwell made the journey at this time inevitable. Also, to be honest, the Mayflower was a pretty stupid choice of ship for the journey. It was usually employed as a cargo ship between England and southwest France. Sailing along the European coastline, it was not an ocean liner. Yeah, yo, ships that cross the Atlantic, real different from ships that just do like potter around Europe. Real different. Like, you take one of those little pottering around Europe ships and take that across the Atlantic. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting time. The Billingtons were trapped with 98 passengers living in a space below decks that they ceiling five feet high. Oh my god. And yes, due to malnutrition, people were shorter on average back then, but not that short. And about 80 feet, it was about 80 feet long and 20 feet wide, or 25 meters long and 6 meters wide. That is a small ship for 130 people. 98 passengers, but then there were 30 crew, right? 
That's roughly four people for every meter along the length of the ship, and they were stuck there for two months. I can only imagine that made for a rather sneaky bit of hanky-panky between couples and a rather challenging... Use your imagination. Along the way, a man died in their space and a woman gave birth. I should never complain about British Airways or Delta Airlines ever again. <laughs> yeah, you say this, but every time you're on, like, you're cramped in there, your knees are, like, touching the thing. I'd say, like, Ryanair, such a piece of shit, allegedly. And you're, like, just crammed in there and it's like, just remember, just remember those people on the Mayflower. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not used to this. I'm used to, like, comfort. And then you find you're complaining again. I always complain. Uh, um, who am I kidding, of course? <laughs> well, exactly. At least the Mayflower had the excuse of being the 17th century. You'd think 21st century would no longer pay thousands of dollars to be cooped up like sardines and receive rancid food for slop, or pay thousands of dollars more, sometimes tens of thousands more, for first-class luxury of fully reclining our chairs and not having to sleep upright like a herd of cattle. I mean, sort of. I. It's also like... You get what you pay for. Airlines, of course, could do away with economy and just do business class, but then they wouldn't make any money because be, most people don't want to pay an absolute fortune to have a reclining seat. You'd just be like, yeah, okay, it's it's cheaper. I'll just fly an economy and f suck it up. And it's, of course, I know if I paid more, I could sit up front, but I didn't. Did I? And I'm just okay with that. Anyways, the human rights violations of modern airlines aside, back in 1620, the rotten September weather caused massive waves that bashed the Mayflower, loosening its timbers and causing water to seep inside. And so, Billington the Billingtons got to spend the entire trip not only clustered together with a bunch of Puritans, but soggy and coals, even as they laid in their beds. This led to quite a few illnesses. Yet there, the colonists experienced a perverse bit of luck. Given the appalling conditions, it would have been quite reasonable to expect many more people to have died. Instead, all but one person survived the journey, which the Puritans aboard the Mayflower attributed to divine intervention. Because of course they did. <laughs> the actual script says, because of course they did. And that was also my line. David and I, same page. John Billington, meanwhile, set about alienating quite a number of his fellow passengers with his curt and rather argumentative ways. One person in particular, whose ire Billington drew, was William Bradford, a prominent Puritan separatist who had spent time as an exile in Leiden. Intelligent, disciplined, and devout, Bradford was repulsed by Billington's prickly personality and rough edges, and given Bradford's standing in the Puritan community, this was an unwise enemy to make. Over the course of the journey, the Mayflower got blown wildly off course. On November the 19th, 1620, the colonists sighted land. They were looking at Cape Cod, which is today the state of Massachusetts. This is roughly a thousand kilometers or approximately 620 miles to the north of their intended target of the coast of Virginia. The Mayflower tried in vain to sail along the coast, but unruly winter seas forced the small cargo ship back, and on November the 21st, they dropped anchor at Providence Town Harbor at Cape Cod. The colonists essentially said, yeah, screw it, and decided to set up the colony of New England where they were. Billington found himself among the 41 passengers who signed the Mayflower Compact, a historic document in which Mayflower colonists declared self-government an embryo of United States independence, while at the same time maintaining symbolic obedience to King James back in England. I feel that's one of those things, it's like, yo, 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 the old king's really far away. Uh, it's like, you know, when you have a party and your parents are on holiday, it's like, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. On December the 15th, while the Mayflower was still at anchor and most of the passengers were still dwelling aboard, John Billington's son, Francis, then roughly 14 years old, fired a gun near a powder keg. 
John Billington's son was not a brilliant child. This threatened to set off a chain reaction, igniting all gunpowder aboard, effectively blowing up and sinking the ship, also getting rid of all that gunpowder, which is quite useful for stuff. The outrage at Francis' actions caused a scuffle between John Billington and several other passengers, which deepened attitudes against John and his family. They had barely begun their lives in the New World, and a large portion of the other colonists already deeply disliked them. Honestly, in John's case, it seems because he's deeply dislikable. Meanwhile, several expeditions onto the lands began, led by Miles Standish, a hard-nosed and somewhat authoritarian English soldier. It's probable that John Billington joined in some of these expeditions. The weather was freezing and the ground was caked in snow. The plucky English were not used to such severe winter temperatures. The clothing they wore was inadequate. On their first night ashore, several of the men froze to death. Oh my god. Can you imagine? You make it all the way across the Atlantic. You've been on that Mayflower. It's been horrible. And you're like, we finally made it. Why is it so cold? It's so cold, we're dying! And due to the buildup of snow, it became fairly impossible for colonists to move very far inland. The second problem that the colonists encountered was that there was a shortage of food. The Mayflower had already depleted some of their supplies when the Speedwell had delayed them at Plymouth for a month before making the Atlantic crossing. The ground in New England was also too hard by December to do any, any planting. Most frustratingly, the colonists had not even brought any equipment with them that they could fish with, a source of food which probably would have saved them. The third problem was illness struck the passengers and crew aboard the Mayflower. The winter weather caused many to die of pneumonia. Others contracted some sort of fatal coughing disease, most likely tuberculosis. And the lack of vitamin C endemic to ocean voyages caused still others to die of scurvy. As an aside, the practice of British sailors to supplement the vitamin C in their diets by adding lemon and lime juice to their allotted rum is why Americans sometimes to this day call the British by the derogatory nickname of limeys. There you go. Limeys. It doesn't seem particularly offensive. I never really like limeys. Okay, I guess. Love a bit of lime. Don't want to get that scurvy, do we? All told, of the 102 passengers who boarded the Mayflower, 49 men, women, and children died that winter. Oh my god, that is a death toll. The Puritans did not comment on whether, like most people surviving the Atlantic voyage, whether this downpour of death was also divine intervention. No, divine intervention only works when it's a good thing, doesn't it? More would have died, but thankfully the colonists found a large cache of food buried on the shore left by Native Americans, along with several graves. The next morning, the local Norse people arrived, angered that the English had dug up their supplies and disturbed their graves. The natives shot at the landing party with arrows. The English returned fire with guns and chased the Norse into the woods until the Lionies lost sight of them. In just a few weeks, half the Mayflower passengers had died, and a number of historians over the years have mused that it was a shame that not a single one of the Billingtons were amongst the casualties. I've even heard one amateur historian go so far as using the phrase, it was typical bad luck for the New England colony that my family back then was not wiped out of the human gene pool. Little did they know that the Billington dynasty was one day fated to repeatedly traumatize Simon of House Whistler with particularly dark and graphic episodes of the casual criminalist. Yes, thanks to David. The Bad News Billingtons in January 1621, Francis Billington, the same kid who nearly blew up the Mayflower, went ashore with an exploratory party. Not far inland from the Atlantic coast, Francis climbed up a tree and spotted what he called a Great Sea, which he thought might be the Pacific Ocean. In fact, the Pacific lay some 5,000 kilometers or 3,000 miles further to the west. What Francis has found was, in fact, a small part. <laughs> ah! Ah! Oh my god, that's absolutely brilliant. He's a... Uh... 
He's not a brilliant lad, is he, in any way? But it's still this day referred to as Billington C, confusingly. And it also reminds us of what a dimwit Francis was. In 1621, John Billington was also brought up on charges of defying the orders of Miles Standish, the English soldier who was now leading the local militia. John apparently also made, quote, abusive speeches when Standish had tried to give him some orders. Essentially, John had told Standish to go f*** himself. John was brought up on charges the first criminal proceedings in the New England colony. Is this the guy who's going to get murdered? Is John going to murder this guy who's giving him orders? Nevertheless, John displayed humility during his disciplinary hearing and escaped punishment, mostly thanks to the mercy displayed by the governor of the New English pu- colony, the Puritan John Carver. Gov- it's, it's so interesting. They got like this court system. They got all this. There's like 40-something of these people. It's like a small room filled with people. That's it. It's so crazy. 35 million people are these people's descendants. That's wild. Many of them from John Billington. But this incident left a sour taste in the mouth of other Puritan observers. In early April 1621, Governor Carver, who was working in the fields on a hot spring day when he complained of a severe head in his pre- uh, pain in his head, most likely a brain aneurysm, he went home, laid in bed, and fell into a coma. He died on April the 5th. His replacement was none other than William Bradford, the influential Puritan who had already developed a deep dislike for John Billington and his family. Okay, never mind. This is the guy who's going to get murdered. In June or July 1621, John Jr., Billington's eldest boy, wandered away from the settlement and got lost in the woods for five days. John Jr. walked around aimlessly, living off any roots, berries, and nuts that he could find. That sounds dangerous. Where are you getting food? I'm just eating random shit that I find in the forest. That I mean, this is a whole new forest to you. This isn't some familiar-ass forest that you know. Just eating random nuts? Don't wild almonds? Isn't that what cyanide comes from? You mad lad. Thereafter, he was captured by the Norset people. Oh, yeah. Also, those guys, they're around. They don't like you. A search party of ten men, including two native interpreters, was dispatched to find him. This was done at great risk to their own lives, since much of the territory remained uncharted, and the Norsets were fairly hostile to the English ever since the exchanging of fire over the supplies and the graves. <laughs> what a surprise. F***ing <laughs> limeys. Before dawn one morning, the settlers were confronted by a hundred Norset warriors wielding bows and arrows and outnumbering the search party ten to one. Fortunately, the Norset had John Jr. with them. He had been beheaded. He had. Oh, I thought I said beheaded. <laughs> he had been bedecked in a large quantity of beads and honored with the gift of a ceremonial knife. He was returned completely unharmed. Well, that's rather nice. In exchange, he gave them terrible European diseases. In 1622, four horses in the colony. What is wrong with me? I can't read today. That's not horses, that's houses. Four houses in the colony burned to the ground. The cause of the inferno is unclear. It's also unclear whether the fire was an accident or deliberate arson. Nonetheless, many in the colony suspected John Billington of causing the fire on account of his reputation and growing animosity towards several people. Naturally, the other settlers had no evidence to substantiate this rumor, and no charges were ever brought against my grandpappy John. It sounds like they should have exiled John Billington and be like, Yo, John, you're a dick. Go live in the forest, all right? And he'll be like, I don't want to live in the forest. He's like, everyone doesn't like you, John. (laughs) We'll give you that ceremonial knife. Now get out of here. In 1624, John was again implicated in more criminal activity, but this time it was different. Although today we see the Mayflower pilgrims as escaping religious persecution in England, which they undoubtedly were, they had not gone to North America to set up a pluralistic society akin to a modern secular democracy. They had gone to New England to set up a puritanical society, a quasi-theocracy, if you will. And the Puritan Church of the Plymouth Colony ruled the roost. Two settlers, John Oldham and John Lyford, had written several letters that were critical of the puritanical church, which saw them banished from the colony. Why didn't they banish John? 
how hard can it be? Everyone doesn't like him. In North America in 1624, this was a potential death sentence. During their interrogation, the two men implicated John Billington, claiming he took part in many of their heretical meetings and supplied them with information about the colony. Billington denied all of these charges, though given what we know of Billington's character and his own religious affiliations, it seems likely that Billington had indeed grown tired of the austere moral governance of the Puritans, and he'd probably have had difficulty keeping his mouth shut. Although these activities were technically criminal according to the scruples of the Puritans, in reality John Billington was likely just bristling at the lack of religious freedom in the colony in a way that no modern person could really fault him for. Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, you got to put up with the Puritans. They sound really annoying. Um, especially if you don't believe in any of the stuff that they believe in. You're like, dude, do we have to do all this shit? It's so stupid. It would be like someone forcing me to go to church now. I'd be like, you smoking crack? I'm not going. I don't want to go. I don't believe in that. Leave me alone. Why would I have to do this? The following year, in 1625, Billington allegedly continued his subversive activities, at least according to letters written by William Bradford. According to the governor, Billington was loudly and abusively outspoken against the Puritanical Church, the local governments, and even against the agents of the colony back in London. Billington even threatened to have one of the London agents arrested, though for what charge and how he would manage to do that from the other side of the Atlantic is unknown. Yeah, it's like, the, Atla the Atlantic today is big. I mean, it's the same size, obviously. But like, Still, it's it's a big distance. And nowadays you've got phones and stuff. You could be like, yo, I don't know, office in, where are they? Virginia? Be like, yo, office in Virginia, I need you to do this. And then the manager of Virginia would be like, he's like, I changed my mind. He's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going rogue. Uh, but back in the day, I'd be like, oh my God, what are these people in England really going to do about it? Dick all. Bradford, whose rule John had challenged, was now bitter in his dislike of my dear old grandpappy. Billington is a knave, Bradford wrote, and he will live and die a knave. This is the most old English thing ever. In 1626, the people of Plymouth Colony, oh, Plymouth, Plymouth, Virginia, I don't know, wasn't this happening in Virginia? Oh, I don't know. Americans, I'm so sorry. I know this is a big part of your history. Uh, in 1626, the people of Plymouth Colony gained full ownership of the land from their investors back in London. The farmland was accordingly divided among the settlers. In this respect, John Billington got cheated by being given one of the smallest shares of all. Well, John, maybe you shouldn't have been such a dick and people wouldn't have been like, who are we going to give the small share to? Well, obviously the dickhead John. <laughs> like, he's not in charge and we get to decide how this land gets allocated. How much land's John going to get? Uh, how about none? No, we have to give him some. How about one square meter? That sounds good. He was given a modest house and 63 acres of land. That's a lot of land. <laughs> to modern ears, this might still sound like a hell of a lot. But relative to the gains of his peers, this was a slap in the face. But nobody in the colony really gave a sh because the overwhelming majority of the people, particularly the Puritans, deeply disliked and distrusted John. In 1620, it's like, just don't be a dick and people won't screw you over quite so hard. Like, the more of a dick you are, the more they're going to screw you over. In 1627, Billington's eldest son, John Jr., died unmarried and childless. <laughs> I wonder how he died. He's probably getting some Darwin Award, isn't he? This is the kid who saw a pond and was like, It's the biggest sea I've ever seen. A bit of an idiot. Uh, the future of my lineage rested entirely on his second son, Francis, who at that point was still unmarried and childless. I don't know if you ever considered this, Simon, but in the roughly 300,000 years that Homo sapiens have been around on Earth, an estimated 120 billion people have had to survive and reproduce in order to spawn any of us today. And an astounding number of people did not survive 
and never had kids. And when you encounter that an average male ejaculation contains, let's say, 250 million sperm and only a tiny percentage of those ejaculations are made with the possibility of conceiving a child, the odds of any of us being born are downright astronomical. I have considered that before. And it's crazy. It's the odds of any of us being alive is just insane. Another thing that I think about all the time, not all the time, but like it enters my mind a lot now. It's like now I can't go back in time anymore. Like, it sounds stupid, but if there was a time machine invented, right, and you'd yeah, everyone's got stuff in the past that they'd like to go and change, like do things differently, even if it's like, yo, 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 maybe you should bought more Amazon stock. How about Bitcoin when it was free? This kind of shit. And But now I can't. Like, if someone was like, yeah, you can go back and buy some Bitcoin, I'm like, nope, nope, can't do it. Because I'd change something. Or like, I mean like not being able to come back to the future. Go back to the past and then you can do everything again. You know, like say someone goes, you can go 10 years into the past and just buy Bitcoins or whatever. Uh, now I can't do it because then like I can meet my wife and all that stuff, do all that again. Sure I can, that'll be fine. But your kids will be different, right? That's the thing. They'll are going to be different because the chances of them being that are astronomically small and it's that I don't want my kids to be different. I want them to be the same, right? Think about it. And we are fast approaching the point where two more individuals were wiped out from the gene pool. Oh, only like eight pages in and someone's going to get murdered in a true crime podcast. <laughs> so far, it's like, we've learned about the Mayflower, haven't we? <laughs> we've learned about Puritans. Religion. Thank you for still being here. A murder in New England. John Newcomen had not arrived on the Mayflower in 1620. He was one of the many settlers who came aboard later ships as the English tried to inflate the population of the colony from 50-odd people who initially survived that first winter to several hundreds. It is possible Newcomen came over in 1630 along with the first major wave of immigrants from England. Not much is known about John Newcomen or his family. In fact, aside from the fact that he was murdered, we, may know, we know next to nothing about the victim at all. We are not even sure if Newcomen was his surname or if it was simply a reference to the fact that he was a new arrival in the Plymouth colony. Oh, like newcomer. Like, he's a newcomer. Ah. Names. Someone in my past must have been an amazing whistler. All we know was that Newcomen had arrived by 1630, the year he died, and although my ancestor is allegedly responsible for his slaying, I would like to take a moment of respect to mark this man's passing, and the literal thousands of descendants he otherwise might have had if his life had not been cut short. Because here at Casual Criminals, we respect the victims of crimes and the tragedies those people endured, even when our distant grandfathers were the perpetrators. Uh, I don't know if we have to feel sorry for people who were never born. <laughs> Do we? <laughs> I don't think so. By September of 1630, Billington and Newcomen already despised each other. <laughs> surprise, surprise! Allegedly, it's not clear what source of their bad blood was. Some historians have speculated that it has arisen from a disagreement over women or a night of drinking at a tavern which escalated into a fist fight between the two men. Other theories speculate that Billington and Newcomen disagreed over religion or politics, which gave Billington's outspoken and rebellious nature may be a possibility. Another theory goes that Billington had caught Newcomen stealing rabbits from his traps out in the woods. Finally, it is possible that Billington and Newcomen were engaged in some sort of illegal activity. One such theory points in the direction of livestock theft and Billington needed to shut up and Billington needed to shut Newcomen up before he spilled the beans. All we know for certain is that in September 1630, John Billington allegedly hated Newcomen's guts and wanted him dead. Newcomen had headed out of Plymouth into the woods. John Billington was seen leaving town not long after, carrying a gun, or a blunderbuss to be precise. That is the coolest name for a gun. 
According to one witness, Billington had claimed he was going out of town to hunt some deer. According to accounts of the trial, Billington cornered Newcomen, who hid behind some trees. But even with the blunderbuss, Billington turned out to be a fairly good shot, as are a lot of people in my illustrious ancestry. My grandfather used to be the coach of the Olympic skeet shooting team, and he used to practice his aim by throwing pennies up in the air and shooting them. Wow, okay, really? But I digress. In the second version of events, Billington fired on purpose. Billington hit Newcomb in the shoulder, and the man went down. Now, in the movies, a shoulder wound is what a scriptwriter gives the protagonist if they want him to be hurt, but don't want him to be die, be crippled, or horrifically mutilated. And he'd usually show up in the next scene with his arm in a sling. Yeah, 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 but this was back in the day. <laughs> it's like, yo, that's getting infected and you're gonna die horribly. And usually in the scene after that, the sling is gone, the protagonist's arm is somehow now fully recovered. In real life, however, this is total bullshit. The shoulder contains the subclavian artery, which if severed by a bullet will swiftly cause you to bleed out if you're not quickly treated. The shoulder also contains a bundle of nerves called the brachial plexus, which if damaged can paralyze your arm. And in the 17th century, that probably meant that the arm had to be amputated without anesthetic, during which you had a good chance of dying from shock or exsanguination. I made a video on my channel into the shadows about how it was done before anesthetics uh that video was rated not suitable for advertisers and only available for people over the age of 18. <laughs> you have to log in to youtube to watch it and i was like yeah fair play youtube it was super intense and naturally in the 1600s you had a high chance of getting an infection even with modern medicine according to one study from a new orleans hospital there's a 10 to 25 percent chance the gunshot wound to the shoulder can kill you if you're not immediately operated on. In one version of events, Newcomen's artery was pierced and he rapidly bled out. He was later found dead, lying in the woods where he originally fell. In another version of events, Newcomen actually made it to a doctor, but he later died of infection after the 17th century quack tried to operate on him. Either way, John Billington denied killing Newcomen. Nevertheless, a witness claimed he saw John Billington following the victim out of town. The gun allegedly used to kill Newcomen was claimed by Plymouth authorities to have belonged to Billington. However, John denied ever owning the gun. Thus, John's guilt rested entirely on hearsay and unverified claim that he was the gun's owner and speculation that John headed out of town to track down Newcomen when he could have gone anywhere in the woods heading in any direction other than Newcomen's. Today, the degree of reasonable doubt and lack of concrete evidence would have seen the charges thrown out. Yeah, for sure, but this is a really small town. It's back in the day, and don't forget, John's a dickhead! However, this was the 17th century, the same century as the Salem witch trials, and the frail evidence against the unruly Billington seemed more solid to the sanctimonious settlers of Plymouth. William Bradford said the evidence was, quote, plain and notorious, though his grudge against the Billingtons was well documented even in Bradford's own letters. Yeah, be like, I want a new judge. This judge seems biased. He'd be like, bad news. There are no other judges. There's literally hardly any people here. What do you think we're going to go? Go over to the next f***ing county? Doesn't work. The case was put to trial by jury, and there was little doubt of the outcome. The settlers, almost uniformly hostile to John after years of aggravation and his constant dissent, found him guilty and sentenced him to death. There were some arguments, however, over whether the Plymouth Colony even had the legal authority to sentence a man to death and carry out the king's justice. They were, after all, just a tiny early colony on the other side of the world from the king. In terms of legal precedence, they should probably kept Billington in prison for a few months while they consulted with London. However, William Bradford managed to convince the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, that no such consultation was required. They had the legal authority. Additionally, it was important, as Bradford put it, to purge the land of blood. Holy shit. Are we talking some 17th century eugenics here, my dude? It's like, yeah, this is a bad dude. Let's kill him to get him out of the gene pool. Uh-oh.
which would somehow be bizarrely achieved by execution. <laughs> At any rate, Bradford pointed out that the family was, quote, one of the profanest families in the colony. <laughs> well, might as well kill them all, then. And they had been punished for misconduct before. Bradford went on to add that he had no idea how the Billingtons managed to bluff and con their way onto the Mayflower in the first place. None of this is even remotely relevant to the murder charge, but such was the logic of the vindictive William Bradford. Given the evidence was so flimsy, he needed to nail the legitimacy of his actions home somehow. In his view, a rotten egg who had caused a little bit of trouble in the past, who did not easily follow orders, and who did not subscribe to his particular brand of Christianity, was likely to have committed every single crime of which he was subsequently stood accused. Politically, Bradford had every motive for getting Billington out of the way, since the troublesome man had for nine years represented a threat to Bradford's authority. Billington was put to death by hanging only a few days after his arrest and hasty trial. It is alleged that after John Billington's death, the rest of the family continued to be victimized by the local government. In 1636, Eleanor Billington was convicted of slandering local politician John Doan, and she was placed in the stocks and whipped, in addition to being given a fine. There's no record of what rumors Eleanor was spreading. She died in 1642, one of John Billington's granddaughters. Meanwhile, she was also placed in the stocks for fornication. <laughs> Holy Stocks, fornication. The past was the worst. Allegedly, she had sex with her husband before they'd gotten married and had one of her sons out of wedlock. Puritans were the best, weren't they? The, no. Francis Billington, meanwhile, the boy who nearly blew up the Mayflower, seems to have kept his nose relatively clean. He married in, 19, in 1634 and had nine children, a vigorous series of acts for which I am intensely grateful. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't he die? I thought he died. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was the oldest son, not Francis. The oldest son died. He wasn't the idiot. The idiot survived. <laughs> oh, no. I see a giant sea. <laughs> Dude, that's a pond. Again, reminds you of that brilliant spy movie um, where Jason Statham's character at the end is like, I'm going to take this boat. Going to sail it down to the south of France or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, Brrr, powers away on this boat. And you just hear him shouting, Is this a fucking lake? Mwah. Exonerating John Billington In the centuries following John's death, numerous members of the Billington brood have argued that John was either innocent of murder or else was wrongly convicted and sentenced in a miscarriage of justice. Prior part of this may be motivated by the Billington desire to clear the dynasty's name. We are decidedly more notorious than any of the other Mayflower families. There is very little doubt that the claims of Billington following Newcomen out of town are entirely hearsay. No one saw the shooting. When it came to tying the murder weapons of Billington, it was his word against an accusatory Puritan government. And even if the gun was his property, that does not necessarily mean it was Billington who pulled, pulled the trigger. trigger. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, though, isn't there? And there's not so many people. So, I don't, I don't know. I probably reckon he did kill him. I mean, obviously, there's not enough evidence for him to be executed. Of course. All of this leaves open significant reasonable doubt that they should not have secured a guilty verdict. One could also, by modern standards, have called a mistrial given that the jury was almost uniformly biased against him. Yes. Did they have a jury? I thought it was just a judge dude being like, yo, guilty. If this had happened a couple of centuries later, the trial would have been moved to a different town and placed in front of a jury who had no prior knowledge of Billington. As for fingerprints or testing for gunpowder on Billington's fingers or testing for DNA, you're about 350 years ahead 
of forensics. There's next to nothing tying Billington to the murder. We don't even know what Billington and Newcomen had quarreled over previously, if they had, in fact, quarreled at all, or assessed the likelihood that the argument would have come to violence. Hell, we don't even really know who Newcomen was. What we do know is that Billington was not a Puritan, was not well liked, was prosecuted in 1621 for telling a militia leader to f off, and was not convicted of anything again, although the townsfolk did gossip that he was involved in other crimes, which included the act of criticizing the government and the church, which, you know, aren't really crimes. We also depends where you are and when you are, doesn't it? We also know that once the guilty verdict was reached, William Bradford went to great lengths to secure Billington's execution and to justify his death with irrelevant assaults on his family's character. History is often written by the victors, and in this case it was William Bradford who wrote the history. With all that said, I would be less troubled than some members of the Billington family if Grandpappy John was indeed guilty of killing Newcomen. I do not find having a murder in the family such a horrific stain on our honor. I'm pretty sure with thousands of generations in every single family tree on earth that every single one of us has a killer in our family history. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, and probably more recently than you think. Hell, there are millions of descendants of Genghis Khan in the world. In fact, as a right of casual criminalist, I have to say that being related to the first man to be executed for murder in the 13 colonies is actually a bit of a badge of honor. <laughs> There is one aspect of John Billington's death that does anger me, however. The man was obviously an opponent of theocracy and tried to use his free speech to denounce bad government. And regardless of whether he was guilty of killing Newcomen, the governing body of the day railroaded him and rushed him to the scaffold. In his own blustering and mischievous way, Billington stood for freedom of religion, free speech, and rebellion against unjust government in a way that keenly represents the founding principles of the United States of America. Of America, he was just a century ahead of his time. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like, sure 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 he's he is but i don't think he's doing it for any grand principle he's just doing it because that's how he is he's just a bit of a dick and also if you're in some tiny community it's not like you're edward snowden standing up to the nsa it's like you're just a dude in a group of 50 people who are all trying to get along in a horrible environment i don't know i don't think he's some sort of hero <laughs> at all he's probably just a murderer dismembered appendices Number 1. Other descendants of John Billington include James Garfield, the 20th President of the United States, who was assassinated in 1881 after serving just a few months in office. Richard Gere, who is a who was a Hollywood heartthrob until an unfortunate rumor circulated about a gerbil, John Lithgow, who was in Third Rock for the Sun, and in a massive coincidence, also played a serial killer in Dexter. I know that. Oh my god. Was he good in that show or what? The Wilson brothers, who founded the pop group The Beach Boys, Taylor Swift, who has a fantastic career writing songs that badmouth her ex-boyfriends. Taylor Swift is a legend. Like, I'm not. A, it, it's pop music. It's not necessarily for me. But Taylor Swift is like, is very cool. The 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 shit she gets up to. And Vanessa Hudgens, a singer and actress who got famous for being in High School Musical. I don't know who she is. Number two, rest assured, dear listener, that despite a century of searching, no biologist or psychologist has ever discovered the existence of a criminal gene or some DNA passed down in family trees that makes some families more likely to become murderers than others. It would appear that the propensity to murder is something more universal to the entire human race. So no, the fact that I am descended from Don Billington is not proof that I'm a serial killer. However, that would make a lot of sense. Like, and also, James Garfield, Taylor Swift, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> However, if they did one day find the so-called criminal gene exists, I'm covered by the knowledge that I'll be under just as much suspicion as Taylor Swift. Hell, maybe she can even lend me her lawyer. I get the feeling Taylor Swift's lawyer is probably extremely expensive. 
because <laughs> Taylor Swift's extremely rich. Number three, in case you were wondering, I'm not aware of any other murderers in my family tree, though I do not doubt some exist. I do know that on the Billington side, my ancestors hung around New York for a couple of centuries before heading off into the Wild West. One of my ancestors became one of the first sher- sheriffs of a county in Montana, falling on the other side of the law. I myself briefly worked for the police. Another batch of my relatives were Scots and English who went to Canada as part of Britain's second wave to establish an empire after the War of American Independence. And then on yet another branch of my family tree, there are more immediately British, with one twig being wealthy landowners in Wiltshire and another twig, my grandfather, being in the RAF facing down Rommel in Egypt in World War II. Meanwhile, I'm just some git in Australia who definitely has never killed anyone and just writes books and scripts and buys suspicious amounts of rope and duct tape from hardware stores. I've said too much. Your knowledge of your family tree is impressive, David. Uh, I, I just got absolutely addicted. Ancestry DNA were a sponsor years ago years ago uh, where i did one of those spit things and they tell me you know this is your dna makeup but i also was so intrigued by it that i signed up to the other side of their service which is where you can like go through all the old records and stuff and link things together and connect your family trees to other people's family trees that they've made like pieces of a jigsaw coming together and i was addicted to this like i would just go into work and it'd be like yeah yeah let's do a bit of work and then i'm just going to spend 10 minutes and i'll find one new record let's do it and then i had to cancel it because it was so compelling one day when i get old and retired i'll probably return to that and it'll be fun it's super fascinating and you're like oh my god these people who i never met like my great great grandparents here's their wedding certificate and you're like that's mental it's so cool I don't know. So I guess some people find this interesting. Some don't. Anyway, uh, this has been an episode of the Casual Criminalist. <laughs> Barely. Barely. This is like a history podcast, uh, which I'd love to do at some point. I'd love to do a history podcast like this where I get to like comment on it and go more in depth. That'd be fun. Uh, let me know if that's something you want in the comments. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, like it, subscribe. If you're uh, uh, watching, listening. God, what's wrong with my voice today? What's wrong with my speaking? Uh, if you're listening as a podcast, please do leave us a review. That is extremely helpful in getting the podcast in front of new people. And as always, thank you for watching or listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.